There's one basic teaching which is common to all the traditions of Buddhism in whatever culture or country it's manifesting. And that is teachings on the Four Noble Truths. Because they really encapsulate the dilemma that faces us and the possibility or the experience, the realization of freedom. One of the things that's so amazing about Dharma practice is that it's like a hologram. You know, whatever part we look at, whatever perspective, whatever angle we're coming from, any part reveals the whole if we look deeply enough. What is the first noble truth of the Buddha's teaching? Carol mentioned it last night. The first noble truth is the truth of suffering. The Buddha saw the basic problem inherent in existence because he saw that in the realm of conditioned phenomena, Suffering is inherent, inevitable. What does conditioned phenomena mean? It's simple. It means everything. (laughs) 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 Everything that arises out of conditions. That's what conditioned means. Things which arise out of causes. So everything in the phenomenal world is a conditioned phenomenon, is a conditioned and therefore unsatisfying. The Pali word for suffering is dukkha. Um, And it's translated, and there's a wide variety of translations. It means suffering, unsatisfactoriness, unreliable. How do we experience this? Again, I think that the great task for us is somehow to bring the abstraction of the teachings to connect it with our actual experience. Because to study it as philosophy or comparative religion, (laughs) it may be of some interest to people, but that's not really what transforms us. We really have to connect it to our own experience. So what is this truth of suffering? Buddha talked of three kinds. The first kind are those experiences which are painful in themselves. And he called this dukkha dukkha, (laughs) just (laughs) to emphasize the point. (laughs) We see it, you know, it's this dukkha dukkha, these things which are painful in themselves. It's really pervasive in the world. A lot of you are working right in the midst of it. You know, we see political and social injustice and exploitation in so many different realms. The pain, the suffering of war, of violence, of cruelty, of hunger. These are conditions which are suffering just in and of themselves. They're painful to be with. We can feel this dukkha dukkha, this pain in our own bodies. You know, when we have painful sensations, or the process of getting older and weaker and getting sick, getting diseased. And often the process of dying is a painful one. We can see this suffering in the world, we can see it in our bodies, we can see this suffering in our own minds. You know, all of the painful, unpleasant mind states. And there is a long list. There's anger, hatred, fear, boredom, jealousy, despair, discouragement, frustration, loneliness, unworthiness, self-hatred. Enough, enough already. What's important is that we recognize this, you know, that we really open to this to see, yeah, a significant part of life experience. 
that this is part of being alive. As I mentioned the other night, it's not that it's a mistake. This is part of our experience. This is the first kind of suffering that we can really connect with. We can be with, we can open to. It's in the world, it's in ourselves. The second kind of suffering is the suffering that comes out of the impermanence of things. And it's really the suffering of conditions being unreliable. You know, we keep looking in our lives for happiness, for a lasting happiness in this conditioned world. And it never quite arrives. Have you noticed how we live our life very often just waiting for the next nice event? You know, the next vacation or the next, the weekend, (laughs) you know, or the right relationship or whatever. And it's always, it seems as if this completion or happiness is always just ahead of us. If only this happened, if only this happened, if only this happened. But of course, even when they do happen, it is happiness for a time, and then it's gone. Because the very nature of all conditioned things is change, impermanent. If we're looking for a lasting happiness in that which is not lasting, it's not a good move. (laughs) (laughs) Because we're we're looking (laughs) in an arena which cannot provide what we're looking for. And yet, we keep doing this. You know, sometimes in reflecting on this, I just, I think back to all the wonderful experiences, the different ones that have happened in my life. Where are they? They were wonderful at the time, and they're gone. So this is another kind of dukkha. This is another kind of unsatisfactoriness. Sort of really connecting with the unreliability of phenomena to provide a lasting happiness for us. So we can finally maybe start looking in the appropriate place. There's a third kind of dukkha. And the Pali word for it is sankara dukkha. And it's the suffering... It's the suffering of having to expend energy to keep things together. You know, I told my house story the other night. It was great. I moved into my house and I was really enjoying it. But after a very short time living in it, I made this great discovery. It really was... I discovered that not doing anything it got dirty. (laughs) And then I had to clean it. (laughs) So my mind made this connection between this first noble truth, the truth of suffering, and the second law of thermodynamics, (laughs) which I (laughs) know almost nothing about, except the general principle that things tend to disorder. Systems tend to disorder. And so to keep them in order, it requires the input of energy. You know, we're here for 10 days. Our clothes get dirty. They need to be cleaned. We need to do whatever we do to have enough to eat. There's always this expenditure of effort and energy just to keep things together. So that's another kind of dukkha. That's another kind of suffering. It really comes down to something very simple, this first noble truth. It can can be summed up. All of these different kinds of suffering can be summed up. When we're associated with what we don't want, it's suffering. And when we're separated from what we do want, it's suffering. And this is the push-pull that's happening throughout our lives. 
When we're with what we don't want, we suffer. When we're separated from what we like, we suffer. When we resist what comes, there's suffering. When we hold on to what's changing, we suffer. So one question that arises, so what? Why should we pay attention to all this? I mean, people seem to be living their lives who never give a moment's thought to any of this. Why should we? Why, why should we make this enormous effort? I'll tell you. I'm not taking any chances. Because it really takes a very great kind of openness and really a great courage to really see what is actually there. You know, it's very easy to live, and I think we do much of the time, and many people do most of the time, it's very easy to live in a state of resistance, in a state of avoidance, in a state of denial, and... (laughs) I mean, you're probably dealing with it a tremendous amount. People who are just not willing to open to see what is actually going on, the suffering that's there. There's one story which epitomizes this tendency. A friend of mine told it to me. It was a story of his grandfather in the early 40s. driving with his father. So the grandfather was driving with his son. And they were driving the car, and it was December 7th, 1941. And they heard on the radio the news of Pearl Harbor. And the first thing the grandfather said to my friend's father was, don't tell your mother. Now that's a hard one to avoid. (laughs) And that takes a real special effort. (laughs) She probably finally found out. (laughs) Of course, what's instructive is that we can laugh at that and yet in our own ways we're all doing it you know and so we really need to see how it is that we avoid you know or or deny or resist there are two very important implications of this way of living one is that very often in the very process of resisting whatever it is, whatever unpleasantness or suffering, the resistance is actually feeding that which we don't want to let in. So it's not a very productive strategy. Just as a few examples, you know, when there's pain in the body and we resist it rather than open to it, what's happening? We're tensing behind it, creating more pain. Our very avoidance of it is strengthening it. And the same thing happens with our resistance or avoidance of unpleasant thought forms or mind states. The more we resist them, the more they're fed because we're imputing a reality to them which they don't actually have. You know, when we resist feeling anger or sadness or whatever it is, or certain thought forms in the mind, when we resist them and we don't want to see them or feel them, we're actually feeding them because we're giving them a concrete reality which in their nature they don't have at all. An image which 
came to mind some time ago as a way of relating to all of these unpleasant aspects of the mind which we might have a tendency to resist or avoid. And I thought of it particularly with regard to the hindrances, you know, of desire and aversion and sleepiness and restlessness and doubt. But it could be anything. It could be states of fear or <coughs> cruelty, whatever. Whatever we don't want to let in. It reminded me of kids in Halloween costume. You know, on Halloween and kids come to your door and they're all dressed up. You know, and the pirate comes. Do you get frightened? Probably not. <laughs> you know, because you know it's just a kid in costume. So you give it candy or whatever. All of these thoughts, all of these thought forms which seem so fearsome to us are nothing more than kids in Halloween costumes. If we believe the costume, so then we resist. Uh, get away. I don't want to be with you. Leave my doorway. When we see that it's just a costume, it's no problem at all. We can have a real loving relationship with them. Okay, so this is the first implication of avoiding or resisting suffering, that we're actually feeding it. There's a second implication, which perhaps is more touching. When we live in a way that closes us off to the experience, to the awareness of suffering, when we become defended against it or armored against it or protected from it, what happens is that we are also closing off the wellspring of our compassion. And so it's a very significant consequence. How does this happen? You know, compassion is that feeling in the heart that wants to alleviate the suffering that exists in the world, in other people, in ourselves. It's that movement to action. It sees suffering, it's open to it, and it wants to do something about it. That's the power of compassion. It's described really beautifully by a of a little haiku poem by Ryokan, Zen, who was 18th century poet, hermit, monk, uh, and very, very uh, wonderful poetry. He said, Oh, that my monk's robes were wide enough to gather up all of the people in this floating world. And that's the feeling of compassion. Oh, that my monk's robes were wide enough to gather up all of the people in this floating world. What opens us, what connects us to this feeling of compassion is precisely our ability to open up to experience the suffering that's there. So this realization of the first noble truth is essential. I mean, it's, it's like the foundation of our spiritual path. There's a very critical discrimination that has to be made here. And it's particularly critical for people who are already open to suffering and trying to alleviate it. And that is the distinction between compassion and sorrow. Because these are two very different mind states. Both of them are responses to suffering. You know, we can feel compassion, we can feel sorrow. But in sorrow, there is aversion to the suffering. And in compassion, there is not. And it's this distinction which then leads to very different kinds of responses. So we really have to see this clearly. If we respond to suffering with aversion, aversion to it, we don't like it, 
the reactions that come from that aversion then are sorrow, are anger, are hatred, are fear, and those become the motives then for action. They're not very constructive motives. When there's openness to the suffering rather than aversion to it, then our response is one of compassion. You see the difference between these two. They start from a place that's very close. It says that sorrow is the near enemy of compassion, which in the Buddhist jargon means that it's a mind state which looks like compassion. We can mistake it for compassion, but is not. They're two states of mind very close, but end up in very different places. But sometimes it's hard to see how we cannot have aversion to the immensity of suffering in the world. You know, and as you deal with the problems that you deal with and maybe contemplate even much larger ones, how can we not feel aversion or hatred or anger towards the things that are going on? I think it's helpful to look at our own experience of suffering because it gives us insight into the importance of this distinction. You're sitting here in the hall and you're sitting with this agonizing pain in the knee. Does hating the pain contribute in any way to its alleviation? No. It just further creates a struggle. The hating of the suffering The hating of the pain, the aversion towards the pain, does not contribute to the alleviation of it. If you're sitting and you're having a run of awful mind states, awful thoughts, you're the worst person in the world. Thoughts of cruelty and revenge and, I don't know, just imagine your worst kinds of thoughts. Does hating those thoughts in any way alleviate the suffering of them? No. It just further pollutes the whole internal environment. If we can be with the pain in ourselves, the pain in the knee, the painful thoughts, the painful emotions, with a sense of caring, with a sense of loving, with a sense of openness, as opposed to aversion then it is much easier to actually alleviate, create a healing space. And the same thing that's true for us is true for the suffering in the world. Aversion towards it does not help. So we need to see, we really need to examine within ourselves and learn to discriminate in ourselves between the feelings of sorrow, which may come, and the feeling of compassion. So we get very clear about the difference. Now this is a really difficult practice. It is not easy to open ourselves to suffering. To really be open, not not with aversion, not with hatred, but just to let it all in. And it's precisely because this is our practice that the first, the realization of the first noble truth is the practice of compassion. Because to the degree that we realize, we open to, we're aware of the suffering that exists in ourselves and in the world, This is the practice of letting everything in, not holding anything aside, out. We let all the conditions of the world in. We let all kinds of people in. Our friends as well as our adversaries. We let all the sides of ourselves in.
know, this this past year I saw two movies which really had quite an impact on me, and they both had the same theme, which is this theme of how compassion grows from letting suffering in. One uh, was Schindler's List, of course, and the other was um, a movie called Romero. I don't know if you saw that. It was about the Archbishop in El Salvador. And both of them started with beings who were in the midst of tremendous suffering, but basically closed off to it in one way or another. And the movie, both movies, just portrayed the gradual opening of these people to the suffering that was around them and the outpouring of compassion, of compassionate action that took place. So in both of them, it it was quite amazing because even though they were documenting the most horrendous suffering, both movies were tremendously inspiring to me. Because it showed the power that can come when we open ourselves to this. Open ourselves with compassion rather than sorrow. With openness rather than aversion. That's the key. That's That's the key point. All of this is summed up Again, the Japanese, you know, I I love Japanese aesthetic because it's so Japanese. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, there's another little haiku poem by Isa, who I've mentioned before. It says, in the cherry blossom's shade, there's no such thing as a stranger. You know, and it just expresses for me just this quality of opening to it all, of letting it all in. In the cherry blossom's shade, there's no such thing as a stranger. So this is the first noble truth of the Buddhist teaching. It's about suffering and opening to it and the compassion that comes from that. The second noble truth of the Buddhist teaching is the cause of suffering. Why is there so much suffering in the world? Mostly, we relate to it, both in ourselves and other people, on the level of symptoms. We're dealing with the symptoms of the suffering. What the Buddha saw, you know, and this is the greatness of enlightenment, he went to the root cause of suffering, why is it in the world? Why is there? Why is it so pervasive? No, no matter what we do, and this came up the other night in a little discussion, we can make our best efforts to really alleviate the pain that's here. But as long as there is greed in the mind as long as there is fear in the mind, as long as there is hatred in the mind, as long as there is ignorance in the mind, suffering will continue. Because it's not a question, at its root, of fixing something. We want to fix what we can. We want to alleviate the symptoms. But the real root of it are these basic forces in people's minds. It's because of greed you know that there's so much injustice. It's because of hatred. It's because of fear. These are the underlying causes. Now there's one aspect of ignorance which is actually, it actually underlies all of these other unwholesome forces in the mind. There's one source point for suffering. There's one root cause. It is the great hallucination of our lives. We are living in a massive hallucination.
And that is the very deeply conditioned idea or concept we have of self, of I. Our lives embody this. They revolve about this. This notion of self, this notion of I. It's the construction of a reference point. A reference point of I to whom all experience is happening. So everything comes back like this. I'm feeling, I'm thinking, I'm everything is back to that reference point. As soon as there is the construction, the fabrication of the sense of self, automatically following from it is the sense of other. If this self built in to the feeling of self is the feeling of other. So from the very beginning, there is separation, there is duality. And it's in this context of self that so many unskillful actions proceed. If there's a self, and whether we consider this personally, you know, our personal self, or our national self, right? what happens? As soon as there's this notion, we need to defend it, we need to protect it, we need to gratify it, we need to aggrandize it, all of these unwholesome actions are happening based on this notion of a self, an I, a me, a mine. And it's this concept of self to which all suffering adheres. What is so amazing about all of this is that we're making it all up. This is the hallucination. It's not something that is real. It's not something that is true. But it is a massively ingrained habit of mind. What does it mean to say that there's no self? Because often we hear it And for a major part of our mind, it doesn't make any sense at all. What does it mean to say there's no I, there's no one behind the process to whom it's happening? Who came here? Who's sitting in the hall? (laughs) If there's no I, if there's no self, who are all of you? (laughs) Not to speak of me. (laughs) Who has memories? You know, who falls in love? Who gets angry? I mean, all of these questions arise, and they're very common sense questions. We're talking about something that is very deep and very profound and goes well beyond our conventional notions of what is true and what is real. Sometimes people, just even in hearing the notion of selflessness, get afraid. You know, because maybe the mind conjures up this image of just disappearing in a great cosmic flash. I mean, suddenly you're here and then you're not here. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> what will my family think? <laughs> but it's really not that at all. the deep understanding, the realization of selflessness, that is really the jewel of the Buddhist teachings. You know, it's, it's at the heart of a free mind. So how can we begin to understand it? How can we begin to touch that realization? In order to have a framework for understanding what selflessness means, we need to look at 
the very great extent to which we live in the world of concepts. Because self is simply another concept. But mostly, we have no idea how much of our experience of the world is really an experience of concept, not of reality. And that's why we get deluded into thinking that self is also true. So I'd just like to give you some examples. (coughs) But I'll, I'll frame it all... Most of you are probably familiar with the famous uh, parable of the cave in the Republic of Plato. It's a a very good metaphor for this. There's a cave and people are chained in the cave in such a way that they can only face the back wall. Behind this row of people is a fire and then there's a procession of figures going by engaged in all the activities of life and they're casting shadows on the back wall of the cave. Now, the people who are chained in the cave and can't turn around, all they see are the shadows. And so they take the shadows to be what's real, what's true. Now, sometimes one person perhaps makes a great effort and loosens the chain and turns around and says, oh, there's fire, there's, these figures won't... The shadows aren't real at all. They're just a reflection of reality. And maybe with even greater effort, they cut the chains and can go into the sunlight, into freedom. To the extent that we are living in the world of concept, it's like being chained in that cave. So what are some of the concepts that in many ways dominate our own lives personally and condition so much of what's happening in the world? And I'll just mention a few. There are endless. One of them uh, we could call the concept of place. You know, as if the world is actually divided up into separate states and countries. There's one story which (laughs) reveals something ridiculous about this. It was told to me by a Greek friend who was traveling to India. Because she was Greek, she couldn't go through Turkey. So she had to go up through Russia and down through Iran, which was then, this was years ago, was then open. And she described the border crossing between Russia and Iran. And she said it was the middle of no place. (laughs) It was just a big, dry, barren, arid place. And there was a dry riverbed. And over the riverbed was this huge bridge. And in the middle of the bridge was a big iron gate. And it was locked from both sides. (laughs) I just picture the scene. We're in the middle of no place, nothing around for miles, and there's this bridge. And in the middle of the bridge is a gate. And to cross from Russia into Iran, the guards from one side had to go and open, the guards from the other side had to go and open, she had to get her passport stamped, she crossed the border. (laughs) It's like a Fellini movie. (laughs) And yet, had she not done that, serious consequences because people are very attached to this notion, to this concept. You know, our attachment to this concept of place obscures a much more natural order of things. And there are many examples. You know, when when you think just of post-colonial Africa and how the countries were carved up, often without regard at all, to the natural tribal alignments. And so, so much of what's happening is because of conflicts coming out of that arbitrary concept of place. Or even within the environmental movement, you know, and sort of dealing with environmental issues. The difference between having to deal with them state by state, county by county, as opposed to perhaps looking at a whole bioregion and the interdependence. But our boundaries, our concepts have fixed things in such a way that it obscures a more harmonious relationship. That's just one concept. Another one, which perhaps touches us personally more directly, this is huge. That is the concept of time. 
We have created concepts of past and future which dominate our lives. It's very instructive to look incisively at what our experience of past and future actually is. And we, we take these things so for granted, we never really stop and examine what is this thing we call past? How do we experience it? It's amazingly simple. We're sitting here, minding our own business. Certain kinds of thoughts come. Recollections, memories, images, remembrances. We make a category. We make a concept for these kinds of thoughts or images. We call them past. And then somehow we toss it behind us as if the past is a reality back there. Yet when we look carefully, how do we ever know the past? It's always as a thought in the moment. You know, this was the great and (laughs) wonderful insight in Proust's masterpiece, Remembrance of Things Past. I read this years ago. I was was in the Peace Corps. Those long Bangkok afternoons, <laughs> I plowed through you know, these 2,000 pages. But the last, I mean, it was a wonderful book, but the last 50 pages were mind-blowing because the whole book led up to this transforming insight that the past is in the present. That's how we know the past, as a thought in the present. Likewise, the future. This great, big, looming future about which we have anticipation, hope, excitement, despair, whatever. What is it? How do we ever experience the future? We're sitting, certain thoughts come, certain images come. We label them future, toss it out. The future's out there waiting for us waiting to get us. (laughs) You know, a thought is very light. Very light. The concept of past and future, mountainous. To be walking through one's life carrying these mountains on one's shoulders, no wonder people feel burdened. But when we really see, that's just a thought in the moment. And it's a thought we may want to explore and deal with and respond to, but it is just a thought. There's an amazing collapse into the moment when we see this, when we realize this. The whole weight of past and future are gone. It's really quite amazing. But the concepts are so ingrained and we invest so much reality in the concept that we go through life shouldering this burden. In the course of a day here, in the course of a sitting, in the course of one walking period, how much time is spent lost in thoughts of past and future. And it's enormous. It's most of our lives because we don't see it for what it is. Now, some of my most profound insights come from my favorite genre of literature, which Proust, notwithstanding, (laughs) the spy books. You know how often in these kind of junk books they'll quote some highbrow person in the beginning. It kind of gives it a certain legitimacy. Well, one of these books quoted St. Augustine. (laughs) You know, that was the kind of quotation in the beginning. It was a great quote. It said, if the past and future really exist, where are they? (laughs) I know why I'm reading this stuff. (laughs) 
look to see how the thoughts of past and future condition how you feel about your present experience. A very good example. On retreat, thoughts of time. Oh, only two more days. I wish it lasted for another month. Right. And so there's a certain feeling generated by that thought. Or it might be, oh, two more days. How many man- more mental notes do I have to make? <laughs> I can't wait to get out of here. Both of those are simply thoughts. That's all. They're a momentary thought passing through. If we see them as a thought, there's almost no impact. When we take that construct of time to be real, it creates a whole world for us. Okay, I could go on a lot about this. Concepts of place, concepts of time, concepts of ownership. People have the idea that they own things. What does it mean to own something? (laughs) This is mine. (laughs) Mark Twain wrote a wonderful story. It was about horse traders in Russia. But he told the whole story from the horse's point of view. (laughs) And the horses had no idea they were owned by anybody. (laughs) They were in a relationship to various humans. Some were kind, some were cruel. But the idea of ownership never entered their little nice heads. (laughs) We may feel that, well, Imagine how you would feel coming into the room and seeing somebody sitting on your cushion. (laughs) You probably wouldn't go crazy, but there'd be a moment. (laughs) There would definitely be a moment. What are they doing on my seat? (laughs) That's that's just another form of the idea of possessiveness or ownership. Yet yeah, this belongs to me. I want to say, before going further, I do not mean to imply that concepts are not useful. All of these concepts are useful. The concepts of place, of time, of ownership, and some of the others. We need to use them. But it's when we get attached to them when we start taking them to be the reality rather than simply a mental construct that happens to be useful in a particular situation, that's where we get lost. That's where we're in the dream. Concepts of place, of time, of ownership. Concepts of self-image. We create a lot of concepts around our self-image, our self-image in the world, our self-image as yogis. There are so many self-image stories. (laughs) As you know now, since the third grade, I had this self-image that I couldn't sing. And let me just say, certain self-images are true. (laughs) They're not all false. (laughs) But (laughs) to the degree that we get caught in them, it limits us. So anyway, I was teaching in Europa in the early years, in 74, 75, in Boulder. And I thought, well, I'm going to really work with this. I'm going to burst out of this prison. And there was a class, it was called the Natural Voice. It's kind of new age singing class. But that's for me. So I signed up for this class, and it took a lot of courage because this image was very strongly, I was identifying with it a lot. So I go to class, and the first few classes are great, and it's all kind of group exercise and group singing. I'm really having a good time. Then one day, the, the regular teacher couldn't come, and a substitute teacher came. <laughs> And she was an expert in Balkan folk singing. (laughs) So she had us line up in a circle, 
and one by one she sang a note and we were supposed to sing it back to her you know match her pitch I knew I was in very big trouble (laughs) so we're going around and it's getting closer and closer to me and I'm getting more and more uptight you know I'm really feeling she finally gets to me she sings some note I sing something back (laughs) it's not even close it wasn't even in the ballpark she was a very determined woman. <laughs> she kept doing her thing. I kept trying to <laughs> replicate it. Finally, the sort of the regular teacher came in and saw what was happening and really quite skillful, led me, started where I was rather than where she was and note by note led me up to that place. When I finally got it, the whole place started to applaud. <laughs> it was... One of those moments. <laughs> but it was, uh, these experiences, as they are, if we can either at the time or afterwards kind of put them in a larger context, it was instructive because I saw the degree to which I was caught in a certain image of myself, in a certain inhibition, in a certain reluctance, you know, and the amazing effort it took to, to try to break through that. You know, we imprison ourselves in the images we create. We might create images of ourselves of being very smart or very stupid or very beautiful or very ugly or very heroic or very cowardly or very this or very that. Whatever it is, it's a mold. We've just created a mold and we've poured ourselves into it. So we want to look at those personas that we create because these also are concepts. At the last concept, which is getting back to the subject, and really it's the root one. It's the root cause of our suffering, and the suffering in the world is the concept of self. We have created a notion, we have created an idea of someone, of some being, to whom experience is happening. But that is an illusion. And when we look carefully, we see that it is not true. When we drop into the flow of experience, we see that instead of it being this, referring back to a me, experience is happening like this. Everything is arising and passing. Everything remains the same. Same thoughts, same feelings, same images, same emotions, same sensations. But we're seeing them as empty phenomena rolling on. We're not claiming them as being I, as being mine. Do you have some inner reserves? Okay. (laughs) If you don't, just... You can fade out. <laughs> but I'd like to finish. I'd like to finish this. <laughs> the really important question in our practice is to see how it is that we keep creating this concept of self. Why do we keep creating it? Because it's pervasive. <laughs> we go up to anybody on the streets, you know. Do you exist? Is there a self? (laughs) So it's very deep, really deep in our conditioning. We need to examine very carefully how it's created. The reason we fall into the illusion of self, the reason we get lost in this concept is because mostly we are not paying attention to the composite nature of our experience. You know, we look every morning, we look in the mirror and we say, yeah, looks like the same guy as yesterday. This must be Joseph. And there's a kind of continuity to that. And so we assume, yeah, there's a being called Joseph. 
But when we look carefully at experience, not just that surface appearance of things, when we look, what is it that I'm calling Joseph? Now, this is a name, this is a concept which I'm putting on a certain constellation of experience. When we look carefully, we see exactly what those experiences are, and we see that they're also continuously changing. And the Buddha laid out very clearly what the constellation is. And it's simple. It's really simple. What we call Joseph, self, I, each one of us, is a constellation of physical elements. We experience different sensations. We sit here and you feel pressure, tightness, tingling, the whole range. There's a whole range of physical, tactile sensations. That's one aspect of the constellation. We experience consciousness, knowing. That's another part of the constellation. We experience all the mental phenomena, the thoughts and emotions and images. Each one of these, in each moment, is arising and passing away. Nothing lasts long enough to be called self. When you're sitting and you feel the pressure in the knee, you say, my pressure. (laughs) You don't. You know, when you're just there and you're in awareness, it's just pressure arising. That's what's happening. It's not self. It doesn't belong to anybody. The thought arises. The thought arises and passes away. But there's something more than this. Even when we get a little savvy, when we really are seeing that we call self is a constellation of experiences, there's one other process that we get very involved in and which creates the felt sense of I. And that is the process of identification with these elements. Okay, we've gone past the appearance. We see, yeah, there are sensations, there are thoughts, there are emotions, there are images, there are sounds. We see all the components, but still, unless we're very aware and attuned, in each arising, we identify with it. And out of that identification, we create a concept. And I'll just give you some examples of this. We're sitting. There's the pressure in the knee. As soon as there's an identification with that feeling, we create a concept around it, knee. We build a further concept, my knee. All of these, these knee, my knee, is not the pressure. That's all a mental construct. There's knee, there's my knee, there's my knee hurts, and then there's the whole world of reaction to that. I hate it, I can be with it, I can bear it, I can't bear it. Do you see how the I is being built up on top of a very particular moment of pressure arising? That whole world of I is just a mental fabrication. It's a whole series of concepts. We identify with thoughts in a big way. I mean, even when we begin to see the sensations as being quite impersonal, the thoughts that are arising in the mind, we get lost in them, caught up in them, identified with them over and over again. I'd like to suggest a few experiments. In the next sitting, imagine every thought that arises as coming from the person next to you. (laughs) It's just as a way of loosening this identification with thought as if they belong to someone. And one of my teachers had a great phrase. He said, the thought is the thinker. There's no thinker apart from the thought. The thought is thinking itself. But because we usually are not aware enough, the thought arises, we get seduced by it. We get caught up into that thought form, that mind world. 
and we start living in what the Buddhists call the six realms of existence. You know, the lower realms of suffering, the higher worlds of pleasure. Notice, in the course of a day, how many times we inhabit a mind world created by thoughts. You know, you think of your family while you're here. Maybe you're missing them. The thought of your family is not your family. It's a thought. (laughs) But it looks like your family. (laughs) It feels like it. And so we get lost in it. And then whatever attendant feelings, you know, or love, or missingness, whatever. Or you think of work, or you think of... Our life is a progression of little cartoon bubbles (laughs) of thought They're mind-created worlds in which we are imprisoned until that moment of awake. Ah, yeah, that's just a thought. And you're right back with the next step on the ground. What is so amazing about bringing awareness to thought is that when we're not aware of them, they are so incredibly powerful as to dominate our lives. We are led by our thoughts. And when we are aware of them, we see that they're nothing. They're just these little ephemeral blips, bubbles in the mind. They have no power at all. Tremendous freedom in realizing the insubstantial, empty nature of thought. And it doesn't matter what the thoughts are. They can be the worst thoughts in the world. If you see them as a thought, they come, they self-liberate. There's no effect. We identify with sensations, we identify with thoughts, we identify with emotions. Anger comes, happiness comes, generosity comes, kindness comes. To the degree that we identify with them, we create this notion of self. I'm angry. I'm happy. I'm sad. I'm kind. I'm generous. We are building that construct of self in our identification with the emotion. It is anger which angers. It is love which loves. It is kindness which kindnesses. (laughs) There's no one behind it to whom it's happening. Each of these emotions, each of these aspects of experience are doing themselves. The last thing that we, and most subtle, that we identify with is with awareness itself. We identify with the knower and so create the sense of witness. Okay, I know everything else is changing, everything else is impersonal, everything else is not me, but I'm the one who's knowing it all. As soon as we identify with awareness, with consciousness, we obscure the natural empty clarity, which is its nature. Awareness doesn't belong to anybody. If we look carefully, if we're really attentive, we can recognize and abide in the empty nature of awareness itself. And from that space, everything is simply appearing and vanishing, appearing and disappearing in this great, clear, open space of awareness, of emptiness. They're synonymous. Through the awareness of suffering, we open to compassion. Through the awareness of selflessness, we open to wisdom.
know, and this is what our practice is about. As we see how the sense of self is constructed, as we begin to see that it is just a concept, a mental fabrication, we abide more and more in that place of emptiness. And it's expressed, and I'll end with this, finally. <laughs> it's, a, it's a little poem by Li Po, great Chinese poet. and He said, we sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. We sit together the mountain in me. We sit together the breeze in me. We sit together the thought in me. We sit together the sensation in me. We sit together the mountain in me until only the mountain remains. We stop constructing the sense of I, the sense of self. And then we start abiding just in the natural purity of things. summing up of all of this was expressed very beautifully by Kala Rinpoche, one of the great Tibetan masters. He said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When we understand this, we see we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all. We live in illusion in the appearance of things. We live in the world of concepts and constructs. There is a reality. We are that reality. When we understand this, we see we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all. Let's sit just for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.